Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for how you are growing us, stretching us, sometimes kicking and screaming. But Lord, you are always at work in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for your word, that it is always timeless, it is always true, it is always relevant. It is the very word of God. It is living and active and powerful. It is true life to us. So Lord, I pray that you bless our time uh, this morning, uh, that your words may be, may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start off our message time this morning by showing you a series of pictures of sea creatures. All right, you ready? Okay. Sea snake, stingray, crab, soulfish, jellyfish. All right, what did you see? You saw, you saw a, sneeze, a sea snake, a stingray, a crab, a soulfish, and a jellyfish, right? Some of you may be... <laughs> Dana's shaking his head. He's caught on. Okay. Some of you are thinking, well, yeah, but he's making it seem like they aren't. Uh, and you'd be right. All of these pictures are actually the same animal, the mimic octopus. You want me to go through them again? All right. They're all the same animal. He's just disguising himself in different ways to look like other sea creatures. The mimic octopus, which was only discovered in 1998 in Indonesia, the mimic octopus is aptly named for it survives by mimicking some 15 other uh, sea creatures, either poisonous ones for protection or others to trick its prey into getting too close. Other animals as octopus mimics are lionfish, seashells, sea anemones, and mantis shrimp, a sea creature we talked about a month ago. The reason they can do this is because the only bones found in its entire body is its beak. So it can squish and manipulate its body to look like lots of other animals without limit. In our passage this morning, the people and the religious leaders are only looking at the appearance and what they can see and process when it comes to Jesus and what he's doing. We're going to see why that's such a finite and wrong way of looking at Jesus and see how we, mu how we might be thinking about Jesus in a finite and wrong way to this day. If you remember from last week, Jesus was teaching in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles and observed by those who wanted to kill him. They were blown away by the wisdom and the authority that was apparent in his teaching on the Jewish scriptures. Jesus used that astonishment to call them to pick their jaws up off the floor and take that astonishment as motivation to put their faith in him as their Messiah. Not only did he reveal to them that none of what he was teaching was his own interpretation or creativity, and that it was all God the Father speaking through him, but then he followed that up with the statement that there is no unrighteousness found in him. This statement of perfect righteousness found in Jesus is yet another claim of Jesus to his deity as God, as only God is perfectly righteous and holy. This statement then sets up for what Jesus says next in verse 19 
of our passage this morning. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 7. It's in the New Testament. Uh, you can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, we're in chapter 7. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to John chapter 7 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. We read this, John chapter 7, picking up in verse 19. Jesus is continuing this conversation, and he says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus calls out the religious leaders who have been claiming they've been doing everything according to Moses' law. But in actuality, they're not even following what they're founding their thoughts and actions on. Really, no one follows the law perfectly, as Paul says in the book of Romans, and that's why all of us need a Savior to save us from our sin. But the religious leaders, as Jesus points out in verse 19, are blatantly breaking commandment number six. Thou shalt not, what? Murder, right? Yeah, kill. They believe they're on some holy mission, when in reality, they're just thinking and acting like the common murderer. As one biblical scholar notes, the religious leaders are so self-confident in their following of the Mosaic law that they're blind to breaking one of the biggest commandments found in it. They're either willfully blind, believing the rest of their self-righteousness will make up for it, or their hearts are so darkened by a refusal to repent and take Jesus as their Savior and King, they can't see it but both have the same result. It's the same today. Those who trust in their own self-righteousness based on their own set of morals or they think they're good enough to automatically enter heaven because they believe in some form of higher power and never killed anyone will end up in the same place as the one who constantly rejected and mocked Jesus their whole life. A trust in your own self-righteousness is the exact same relationship to a darkened heart that refuses to repent. It's the same description. Let you in on a little secret. You are not better in morality and self-righteousness to anyone else. Even the most evil people who have walked this earth the heart of every single human being that has ever lived is darkened with no hope in and of themselves of earning favor with God, much less automatic entrance into heaven. The worldview underpinning based on self-righteousness is just as destructive as the one who doesn't care about being righteous in any way. If you have based your way of thinking and your way of life entirely on that foundation, you must get rid of that and start with a new foundation if you want to have any hope. This isn't me painting a bleak picture, even though in reality it is a bleak picture. This comes straight out of the word of God. As it is written, there is no righteous person, no matter how good you think you are. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. 
You cannot get past that in, all, in any way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no loophole there. There's never a case where someone is pretty good and just needed the extra push of taking Jesus as Savior and King. No, God's word is crystal clear. We are all corrupt. We have all sinned and all have fallen short of God's glorious standard. This is the basis for our salvation. The sooner we see that, the more overwhelmingly grateful to God for giving us Jesus we will be. But as a writer of Hebrews says, I'm not just saying this to continually feed you the milk of God's word. We'll see the meat that this is. Uh, I'm sorry, Paul saying, we'll see the meat that this is also the foundation of as we work our way through this passage. Because we are all corrupt, our hearts are automatically darkened to the point of not being able to see what God is doing unless he reveals it to us. This is why even the common random person at the temple that day in our passage this morning has this knee-jerk reaction to what Jesus is saying. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Because the hearts of everyone gathered there, not just the religious leaders, are so darkened and therefore so blind to the truth of God, they see the source of Jesus' words as demonic. Wow! The irony of this, right? Instead of doing what Jesus had called them to do, that is repent of their darkened hearts, they instead denied the very thing the religious leaders were obviously trying to do and called Jesus demon-possessed. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, in essence, what the crowd of which the religious leaders were a part were calling light darkness. What they were doing was they were calling light darkness. Here, Jesus was the representative of the one whom they claimed to worship, God the Father, and the very embodiment of God's light, wisdom, and word, and they instead believed him to be a representative of the very kingdom of darkness. The crowd recognized this as spiritually sourced, but saw everything the opposite of what it really was. And that's what brings us back to Romans chapter 3. Since the sin of Adam, everyone who has ever lived since then inherits a darkened heart and mind that just can't see spiritual truths the way they really are until God reveals them through the regeneration or the rebirth or the transformation of our hearts and minds by way of the Holy Spirit. This starts happening immediately after we answer God's call to repent of our sin and take Jesus as Savior and King. This is what I want us all to see. From the new believer to the seasoned believer, it is only through the regeneration of our hearts and minds that we can see and understand what God's spiritual truths really are. Like Paul says about those Jewish people who don't have the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, 
the veil is taken away. In the same way, anyone and everyone, Jewish or not, has a veil lying over their hearts and they just can't see or understand what is really the truth of God until that veil is removed by the Holy Spirit at the point of them turning to Jesus in repentance. The basic truth that the Holy Spirit reveals to us in our regeneration is a humble understanding of, of, of our standing before God. We had darkened hearts and minds destined for hell. God called us to repent of our sin and who we were and place the trust of our eternity into Jesus' death and resurrection as paying for our sin death debt as a substitute on our behalf. The Holy Spirit then starts transforming us more and more into the image of not a better person, not a more enlightened person, not a stronger person. Paul goes on to describe this process as, but we all with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So what image are we being made into through the Holy Spirit? Jesus is not just a better version of ourselves. We're being made more and more into the image of Jesus. In short, we owe everything to God reaching down to us. It's not the other way around. We didn't reach up to God because it was impossible for us to do so in our sinful and darkened state. It was always and still is always God reaching down to us. And this leads us to this understanding. It's still God transforming our minds through the Holy Spirit in order to understand who he is and what his word says. We don't have some sort of enlightened experience where we all of a sudden are allowed to have some form of progressive view of God and his word. There's a movement going on right now in the world and has been going on for quite a while called progressive Christianity. Anybody heard of this? Progressive Christianity. In it, pastors, other so-called spiritual leaders, and social media influencers are reimagining Christianity and reimagining the scriptures. And other times, leaders and social media influences won't say that that's what they're pushing but that's really what it is. Also in connection with our opening illustration, like the mimic octopus, they mimic what Christianity is and what it's supposed to be while really pushing, in reality, anti-biblical messages. Here's why. Instead of starting with the foundation that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible very word of God, something in and of it itself says about itself, and instead of wrestling with that, digging to see what it really means in relation to the rest of the entirety of Scripture, they force their own experiences and enlightenment onto the text. And so they reject some passages based on cultural changes. They call into question the writings of the prophets and apostles on humanistic premises. They relegate portions of scripture to the realm of legend or manipulate verses to mean something they were never meant to mean. 
I say this in warning as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. If someone in a book, on a website, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, or some other social media platform claims to be a Christian with these progressive and woke views of the Bible, whether their claims that Jesus would be perfectly affirming of LGBTQIA plus lifestyles or gender transitions today, or that Jesus would be pro-choice when it comes to abortion today, or that God is okay with any kind of sexual relationship outside of his blueprint for, of marriage between one man and one woman. And if you're not, you're being unloving, or, some, or, or that some portions of scripture should be treated as legend or myth, or anything that smells like a humanistic view of the Bible i.e. that the law or Paul's writings are culturally based to those time periods and are no longer relevant, stay away from them. They are wolves in sheep's clothing and they are doing exactly what the crowd and religious leaders at the temple were doing to Jesus in our passage this morning, calling what is light darkness and what is darkness light. This isn't surprising, and we shouldn't be surprised about this, for Paul told Timothy, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Is that not a snapshot of today? That's all that so-called progressive Christianity or anything related to it is. Teachers or people of influence who spew whatever everyone culturally wants to hear and want to affirm. It really is based on pride, thinking and truly believing that we as modern humans know more than what God originally intended in his word for thousands of years. That's why I emphasize the importance of humility when it comes to our standing before God. If we're humbly seeking to understand God's word the way he wrote it, then we're beholden to humbly seek its accurate understanding. When the evangelist Apollos was going around the ancient Mediterranean world in the book of Acts, he had some off views on God's plan of salvation. Rather than celebrate his views as progressive, a husband and wife who had a more accurate understanding humbly and quietly pointed out to him the correct way he should view and interpret scripture. And rather than rant against Aquila and Priscilla as being small-minded and archaic, Apollos accepted their more accurate teaching, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. So in the face of everybody who says you can have whatever interpretation you want of the Bible, as long as you believe it sincerely, there's this, that there is an accurate and correct interpretation of the word of God. Yes, our salvation is only based on faith in Jesus because of God's grace in our lives. But Jesus also says that believers would be known by their fruit. A heart that is truly being regenerated by the Holy Spirit is not going to be postmodernly and purposely dismantling God's word in a humanistic and in reality woefully finite way and interpreting passages not on a desire to be as humbly accurate as possible, but on a desire to force it to agree with a cultural and usually in reality anti-biblical worldview. 
Here's the truth. One of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness. You can look this up in the book of Galatians. This is faithfulness in every aspect to following Jesus, to marital faithfulness, to loving God and others, and this also includes faithfulness to God's word. A faithfulness to God's word explicitly means a faithfulness to an accurate understanding of it and what it originally meant when it was written, especially in agreement with the rest of the entirety of scripture. Then you take that meaning and apply it to your life. Then and only then. It's not the other way around. And if it is the other way around and you're doing it to delegitimize the Bible and its relevancy today, you need to have an honest conversation with God and see if you're actually saved and actually bound for heaven or not. Getting back to this morning's passage, Jesus says in response to the crowd, verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did this one deed and you all marvel. What is he talking about here? Remember when everyone denied that they had any knowledge that anyone wanted to kill him? Jesus forces them to remember. Back at the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he had healed a man who couldn't walk for 40 years at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And what was the reaction of the religious leaders at that point? For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus here in verse uh, 21 is telling the religious leaders in that crowd, Hey, you guys remember that? Remember that time where you did say and act like you wanted to kill me? The religious leader's response to that miracle on the Sabbath and Jesus' claim to be God sparked Jesus' whole mini-sermon to them in the rest of chapter 5. And in further uh, continuation of that response, seeing as nothing had changed in the unregenerated minds and hearts of the religious leaders, Jesus says this, verses 22 through 23. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well? On the Sabbath, circumcision and the Jewish understanding of it didn't even originate with Moses, as John records Jesus pointing out here. It originated with Abraham long before Moses gave the Israelites the law. But notice what Jesus says here. He says that the whole incorporation of Abrahamic circumcision into the Mosaic law was not even for circumcision's sake, was it? It was incorporated into the law 1,500 years before Jesus in order to give Jesus evidence and justification to heal someone on the Sabbath. And as one biblical scholar points out, circumcision was a wound allowed to be made on the Sabbath. How much more was Jesus justified in healing a person's entire body on the Sabbath? Here's the other ironic thought about one of the reasons why the religious leaders thought right in seeking to kill Jesus. In order for them to make the claim that Jesus was working on the Sabbath, 
What would they have to concede? They'd have to concede that he was indeed God in order for his working to be effectual and be called work. But again, these guys were masters of cognitive dissonance. As noted by one biblical scholar, these guys were also masters in the minors and the specifics of the law instead of the meaning behind all of the law, which Jesus was trying to get them to see. What was at the heart of the law? And that's what brings him to say this in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The righteous judgment, according to one biblical scholar, is a call to repentance. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's a judgment on oneself, and using that judgment to be driven to repentance and acceptance of Jesus as your only hope. Instead of the religious leaders judging Jesus, Jesus wanted them to turn that around and judge their own unrepentant and unregenerated hearts. Again, Jesus was calling the religious leaders out to kill him, to repent and put their faith in him as their savior and messianic king. This all goes hand in hand with the greater point of this morning's passage. It's the contrast behind a regenerative heart by way of the Holy Spirit and an unregenerated heart that can only process the world in a darkened and sinful state. The unregenerated heart will always process through things in an unregenerated way. We can't change any unbelieving person's mind on any given topic just based on that topic. It doesn't matter how reasonable, logical, or scientific you are, let alone how biblical you are. The only way anyone will have a change of heart on any given topic or anything is to repent take Jesus as their Savior and King, and have the Holy Spirit regenerate them. On that note, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, who was openly celebrating the sexual sin of someone in the church, that not only what was what they were doing against God's moral law, but it wasn't even heard of in the pagan world. Paul writes, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but... It certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. The world, those who love progressive Christianity or its views on scripture and Christianity, and the unregenerated, love to throw around Jesus' words found in Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. How many times has that been thrown in your face? They, this, they think, shuts down any attempt by a Christ follower who stands for the truth of God's word to call what they are calling good for the sin it really is, especially in the context of what is claimed to be Christianity and the church. They retort with, oh, you know, even Jesus said not to judge anyone. This goes back to an accurate understanding of God's word. This is not shutting down the possibility of ever judging any situation, thought, or action as the evil it really is. 
This, according to one biblical scholar, is a statement directed at the Pharisees and their constant attempts to judge him and what he did instead of looking at their own sin. Well, now all of a sudden, this takes on a whole new meaning than what the world thinks, doesn't it? Just as the Pharisees attacked Jesus for how he wasn't measuring up, to what they wanted, the world uses Jesus' words against his followers for not measuring up to what they want. Furthermore, the world and the unregenerated love to quote Jesus eating with sinners as evidence for him being perfectly fine with their sin and even seeking them out to do so. But what's that passage actually say? The three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the same event. After Jesus calls Matthew or Levi to follow him as a full-time disciple, and he does, Jesus goes to eat dinner with him. And either Matthew invites all of his tax collector buddies and fellow sinners to eat with them, or they just show up. It's after the Pharisees question why Jesus is even remaining in their presence that Jesus then says, and hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What is he calling the people he's eating with? Sinners. He's not perfectly fine with whatever they're doing. This is a far cry from Jesus just being perfectly fine with these people's sin and why an accurate understanding is so crucial. What is the illustration he uses? Sick people who need a doctor and seek out that doctor in order to heal them. Jesus wasn't eating with so-called sinners because he wanted to show he wasn't judging them and was perfectly fine with their sin. Jesus was eating with sinners because they knew they were sinners and they came to him to look for healing for they knew he was the only one who could give it. There is a place for calling sin what it really is. Sin that needs to be repented of and regenerated from by the Holy Spirit. Especially within the church, it needs to be done in love and taking care of us getting what needs to be made right with God first. As Jesus says next in Matthew 7, 5. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's what I'm emphasizing. As the church, we are not to just not judge anyone. There is a place to call what is evil, evil, what is sin, sin, and what is good, good, especially and first and foremost within the church and what is, what is called or claimed to be Christianity, especially when it's a horrible representation of what biblical Christianity really is to a lost world. How do we differentiate which is which? Firstly, with the foundation of the Bible as God's inerrant and infallible word, and then seeking to have as, as accurate as an understanding of its original intent and meaning in light of the whole Bible. Jesus has called us to follow him and follow him in every way. 
including recognizing our personal sin for what it is, repenting of it, seeking to be healed from it, and then through the Holy Spirit, stand up for the truth in love in this dark, blind, and unregenerated world filled with demonic forces in power and influence. The world will just keep getting more and more evil and more and more dark. It will just continue to call what is good evil and what is evil good. The prophet Isaiah says this about that. Woe, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It is a big deal. Woe to those who are doing this. As Paul told the Corinthians, God will judge the unbelieving and unregenerated in this condemned world. We don't need to lose heart. We don't need to lose sleep because of the evil in this world. God will take care of that. As we sang about earlier, the battle belongs to the Lord. The unregenerated will just earn what their unrepentant and unregenerated hearts will earn them. More and more darkness until they're banished to the world of darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. When someone retorts to what is pointed out as sin in their lives with, yeah, well, only God can judge me. I always think, do you really know what you're saying? And are you really okay with that? The only hope for any one of us is to repent and take Jesus and give ourselves over more and more every day to the generation, regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It's only then that we can understand what God's word truly says. It's only then that we can determine the time and place for standing up for what God's word calls evil, sin, and good. It's only then that we can get right what we need to get right with God and through his Holy Spirit lead a fellow believer in love to also get their sin right with God. Our standing for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God is not one of haughtiness or pride. Rather, as in everything, our standing is to be in the humility of God choosing us, having grace upon us, and saving us, and then to seek to please him as our king. The Apostle James instructs in connection to this morning's passage and how we are to conduct ourselves as believers today, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly natural, and outright demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for your word of truth. We thank you that we can be confident in it, that it is God-breathed, that it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit who used people to write it down to tell us everything that we need in this life, everything we need to know. Lord, we thank you that there will be a day when we will understand what is going on in our lives and why certain things happen. We may not understand them this side of heaven, but there will be a day. Lord, we thank you that you reveal to us what you want us to know now. You reveal to us what you want us to know about yourself. Our standing before you, how we can be restored to you, how, can we, how we can be saved from our sin, and how we can be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And knowing that one day you're coming back for us, and right now you're preparing a place for us in heaven. So Lord, I pray that we would go with the truth of your word into this dark and blind and unregenerated world, standing for the light of Jesus and the truth of your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.